EMS One Academy, a training solution designed for EMS chiefs, offers more than 200 courses and 250 hours of continuing education. Our modern learning solution includes flexible reporting capabilities and features to upload agency-specific courses and track credentials for recertification. Easily streamline daily administrative workflow with EMS One Academy. Start your free trial. Visit www.emsoneacademy.com slash insideems. Well, this is it. Once again, it's time to go inside EMS, and I'm going to be the one to say it. There's only seven weeks left till Christmas, so uh, let's start breaking out that Christmas list, and let's start doing that shopping. Here's a man that uh, will be getting a gift for me this year, the gift of my friendship, KG Kelly Grayson. KG, how's it going? It's it's great, man. It's the most wonderful time of the year. See, my parents <laughs> used to sing that when school started. <laughs> I can imagine, uh, as, as a recipient of your friendship in the past, I can imagine how they'd sing that when school started. <laughs> so, um, you know, you and I are going, uh, it hasn't happened often. I mean, we've been doing this show close to four years now. April will be four years. Yeah. And uh, that'll be our 200th show. And it hasn't happened a lot, but over the past four years, uh, three and a half years, we've probably been face-to-face to do shows maybe three or four times, but coming up here in the next couple of weeks, we will be in Cincinnati, Ohio, and we will be uh, talking, uh, uh, speaking respectively, and uh, recording inside EMS. But one of the things that I think we're going to talk about today, Kelly, is we're getting a lot of comments of people are asking, you know, how do they get picked for conferences, or what's the best way to become, you know, to become a, a state or national speaker. But I think before that, you know, maybe we talk about how we actually, you know, get to be a good educator. How do we go mm-hmm. from the truck and say, you know what, I could teach ACLS, I could teach CPR. And what are the qualities that go into that? And I think that we'll have a really good time doing that. But before we do that, we do have a listener question, and I'm going to kick it to you for a brief discussion on uh, on that answer. Um, yeah, uh, a high school senior in Minnesota who's taking his EMT class and, and finishing it up on December the 7th. His name is, and I hope I'm pronouncing this right, or hopefully it's not a typo from Greg, uh, Keaton, K-E-T-I-N, um, wants to know what we'd suggest on preparing for the practical skills and the National Registry Cognitive uh, Exam, which is a very common question in, in EMS forums. You know, what do I study for? How do I how do I get prepared for this? Uh, it's a, it's a source of, of angst and stress for just about every EMT student to uh, who ever lived. Um, and what are your what are your thoughts on it, Chris? What do you think that uh, that uh, students need to really prep for uh, before they take their exam? Yeah, when it comes to the practical skills, I mean, these are things that you should have been practicing. For mm-hmm. you know a long time now, and you know those national registry skill sheets really give you a guideline as to how to ensure that your skills will flow. You know necessarily when you get in the field, are you going to do your skills that way? Well, maybe initially, until you start to get up there in the you know into the psychomotor domains of learning, where you now start to think about how can I how can I change this skill around, or how can I make this skill flow a little bit differently. So I think that that's what you have to think about first is understanding the flow 
of those skill sheets. The next thing that I recommend is not only understanding the flow, but understand what each uh, step is doing. So when it says, you know, uh, uh, to make sure that you check CMS before you tighten the, you know, before you tighten the straps on a KED, mm-hmm. understand what, what the importance of that is. Not just that you're doing the step. Why is that an important part of this process? Uh, similarly, as you're going down that list, uh, understand what each step means to the the importance of that skill, but more importantly, mm-hmm. what that means to patient care. Kelly, what do you think? Well, I'm going to differ with you a little bit on the skill sheets. Um, I, I tell my students uh, that the skill sheets are the National Registry skill sheets or, or whatever ones your state may use uh, are set up to be testing instruments. They're not recipes and how-tos. They're not necessarily arranged in the format that you should follow straight down the list uh, to do that skill. They're arranged in a format that is easy to grade uh, for someone who's checking off boxes as you as you perform a skill. Now, having said that, that's how those sheets were intended, but that is not often how they're used uh, at registry exams. Um, all too often, many, many uh, national registry exams, particularly in, in some of these states, are, are so stringent that uh, you have to virtually parrot the skill sheet word for word in order to pass. Um, they expect you to do it that way. So if you've memorized a skill sheet and you work in one of those, you've taken your class in one of those states, um, you know, memorizing that skill sheet should probably get you through the exam. It does not mean you know how to do the skill. It just means you know how to pass the exam. Um, what's interesting to me over the years is you find so many people that bag on National Registry as, as not being a realistic test um, because their experience uh, in the in taking the exam is they've they've had it from these EMS officials in these states who think that uh, require them to parrot the skill sheet uh, verbatim uh, without deviation to pass. And and national registry standards are nowhere near that stringent. There's a whole lot of leeway in how to do a good, do the skill well and still pass the exam. Those are not mutually exclusive terms. So the, the, the caveat that I would add is, is, Understand what the skill sheet is trying to to uh, uh, to test. Um, for example, the patient assessment and management stations and the cardiac arrest management stations. The the key word there in in that uh, in that phrase is management. They're looking at big picture. They don't care how well you splint a fracture or put on a chest seal or bag a patient. Um, virtually every treatment in those things is verbalized. Um, what they want to do is see how well you manage the patient, uh, what your thought processes are, uh, how well you flow through the patient assessment and direct the work of your, your imaginary partner EMTs. Uh, big picture thinking, in other words. Um, the other things are is just you know pay particular attention to the skill, the uh, critical criteria at the bottom of the skill sheets. Those are your quote unquote fail points. Make sure you don't run afoul of any of those things. Um, there's more than one way to skin a cat. There's more than one way to splint a fracture. Um, but if you follow the principles of splinting, um, you know, check pulse motion sensation before and after application of the splint. Support an immobilized extremity. Check pulse motion sensation before and after any major move. 
<clears throat> if you follow those and, and secure a bone end above and below the fracture and the joint above and below the fracture, if you've done those things, it doesn't really matter what device you're using. Uh, you've still followed all the principles of splinting and stayed, stayed clear of those, those critical criteria. The practical exam is, is not all that difficult if you've prepped, uh, if you've put your hands on the equipment and practiced, and more importantly, just visualized how they're supposed to go. You don't have to have equipment in front of you to get proficient at those registry exams. Uh, all you have to do is sit at your, your car at a stoplight and go, okay, so I've got a guy with a flailed chest and he's lying on his right side. What do I do? Um, and, and run through that and visualize it in your head. That's going to keep you from getting the yips when, uh, when it's testing time uh, and, and you'll be able to flow a little better. The other tip that I would tell people is when you're prepping for that station and you're in that, that uh, window of time where the examiner allows you to check out your equipment uh, and, and ask questions, by all means, check out your equipment and ask questions. What I tell people to do in the patient assessment exam is lay out their equipment in the order that they would use it. If they've practiced this and, and rehearsed this in their mind, they have a specific flow they're going to through put out your equipment in the exact order that you would use it. And as you pick up a piece of equipment, verbalize its use, and the examiner tells you consider it done or, or whatever their reply is, toss that piece of equipment off to the side. That way, if you get brain lock in the middle of your scenario, all you have to do is look down and see what equipment you have left, and you can pick up where you left off. So that's my that's my um, my advice for prepping for the psychomotor exam. What do you find what do you find necessary to uh, to prep for the cognitive exam, a computer exam that gives so many people problems? And I just gotta say that you're my hero. <laughs> what? Of I course mean, I am, man. You did that I've known all, that all along. You did that all in like one breath, man. That was pretty amazing. But uh, <laughs> you know, so I think from the you know from the cognitive side, you know, you really have to kind of look at the uh, you know, look at the important components that are going into, you know, each area of, um, of treatment. You know, so if we're talking about trauma treatment, what, what are the most important components that you think are good, you're going to need to deal with a trauma patient? You're going to need to know assessment. You're going to kind of need to know, you know, how you're going to treat certain types of in injuries. Now, at the EMT level, you're really kind of given that, that basic care, so I would kind of go through each chapter. I would kind of think about identification. I would kind of think about assessment. I would kind of think about management and, you know, kind of focus in on those areas. I mean, so if you, you know, get a scenario where it says you were on scene of a patient who was an unrestrained driver in a car in a side impact, you know, what are the things that are going to raise your suspicion? What are the things that are going to give you the, you know, the pause to say, okay, this guy was hit from the side, he was in the passenger side, he wasn't uh, he wasn't restrained, uh, you know, he, he his head probably hit the windshield. So mm -hmm. you're going to go through those processes on a scenario-based test. Do that in your book. So when you go through the process of reading, think about what's happening, think about your assessment, think about your management, and then, if necessary, a transport decision. Yeah, yeah. And when when you're going through those test questions and and trying to uh, review and and everything, all too often people want to memorize minutia. Uh, 
they, they, they memorize a bunch of factoids that they can spit out. Uh, and you know, the national registry exam will ask some of those factoids, but those are lower level questions, uh, that are not weighted, uh, as significantly as the higher level questions that will get you more bang for your buck on that computer adaptive exam. Um, they, they looking for, um, analysis and synthesis questions. What can you do with the information? If you can, if you can answer those questions correctly, then all the other lower level memorization and, and, uh, and recall questions, uh, those kind of things, are you'll have to know them to be able to answer the higher level questions. So I would focus on what you can do uh, with, with the knowledge rather than just uh, regurgitating uh, a bunch of factoids. The other thing I would suggest is get yourself some good test prep material and there are better ones out there than others i'm not going to mention some of the bad ones but some of the the subscription programs that you pay money for um are okay but i've seen some of the test questions and very poorly worded on the other hand i've been involved with and and seen the the uh the workshops that that other people have done for for their test prep software and and uh it's very good uh, i'll i'll give a shout out to dan limmer our, our our friend dan with his limmer creative apps uh which is what i use for all of my students uh those questions on on his uh apps are typically a good deal harder than the the test bank questions that, that are key to their textbook and the dot guidelines um which which makes it very challenging um but a much better review uh and and prep for for that cognitive psycho uh, that cognitive computer exam you know kelly i think we hit a lot of great points and hopefully mm -hmm. keeping this really helps and you know keep us abreast let us know how you do i mean uh you know, get back with us and uh, yeah. let's talk about, you know, even if there were some of those challenges, maybe one of the things that we can think about, Kelly, is, you know, having a, a student on after they've taken the exam. Of course, we don't want to talk about the exam uh, per se, but we may want to just talk about the processes and, and how did your preparation help, so to speak. But let's go ahead and switch gears now and kind of get to where yeah. we wanted to start this conversation and, and kind of talk about how do you transition from the truck to becoming an instructor and some of those qualities, and I think maybe well, what you, you, do, you hurt your back, don't you? Isn't that the way it's done? Oh yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> you hurt your back or blow out your shoulder or something. Isn't that the way people usually transition from the truck to, to teaching? Well, let's talk about the right way to do that. So, <laughs> okay. You know, one of the things that I think you need to first start off with is you need to first start off with the ability to have an understanding of what you're going to teach. Mm -hmm. Now. One of the things that's really important is that, uh, you know, they say that speaking is one of the biggest fears of people and, you know, even death ranks uh, higher there, you know, or, or the fear of speaking ranks higher than death, which is amazing to me. But, you know, you really need to have a good understanding of what you're going to try to teach. Then yeah. secondarily, you really need to have an instructor methodology course, the methods of instruction, mm -hmm. because it really gives you the science of teaching. You know, when we think about some of the things that scare us when it comes to being an instructor, what if somebody asked me something I don't know? I got to tell you, in my 30 years, 31 years now of being an instructor, I've been asked things that I didn't have the answers to. And understanding that that's okay and understanding how to get out of those situations really kind of give you pa uh, really kind of give you a little bit more of a comfort level when you think you're supposed to know everything that's what's going to get you in trouble like when you're Kelly Grayson but one of the other things that I think is uh, you know important as well is you know once you learn the art and science of instruction is to truly master those skills so you're able to be entertaining one of the things that I always tell my instructors uh, instructor students Kelly 
is mm -hmm. before you even start this process, I want you to write a list of the best instructors that you've ever seen. On my list would be Kelly Grayson. And I would talk about some of those qualities that really made you enjoy their classes. You know, were they humorous? Were they dynamic? Did they move? Did they use voice inflection? Um, did they teach you rather than read to you? You know, it, it's not a nursery rhyme. It's not a, it's not a bedtime story where we need to kind of read to the, the students. And then I asked them to do the same exercise with the worst instructors that they've seen. Mannerisms, uh, voice inflection, if there's any. Uh, what is it that really caused them to say, this guy really blows chunks as an instructor? And then I want them to kind of study those lists to make the determination of what type of instructor that they want to be. And as they list their own attributes, then I give them the, the, the um, assignment to say, now, why are those attributes important to you? Then I ask them, even before we get into instruction, Kelly, how do you think you attain those attributes? And then as we start to teach the science, the methods of instruction, I want them to mirror that assignment to the things that they're being taught, and hopefully they can find the value in that. I, I can dig that. You know, the, the, the advice I would give people thinking about getting into instruction is, is first of all, start off on the bunny slope of instruction. Uh, get a card certification in one of the, the alphabet soup courses like ACLS, PALS, BLS, uh, PHTLS, that sort of thing, because that's that's really the bunny slope of of EMS teaching. Um, there's not a whole lot of of uh, individuality encouraged there. If you can if you can regurgitate information in a megacode scenario uh, and uh, take an online exam uh, or take an online portion of a course and go through an instructor course, you're pretty much qualified. Uh, if you've got an index finger and a brain stem to press a play button on a, on a CD player uh, or a DVD player, then, then you're good to go. Um, but and and sadly, that is that is really what qualifies people to take AC, uh, to teach ACLS and BLS and PALS these days. Um, however, uh, in the course itself, as you get your feet under you and you, you reach a comfort zone with this material, you'll be able to to uh, cultivate those those that ability to think on your feet in the scenarios and the uh, in the case studies and, and so on and, and learn how to respond to people uh, uh, and um, and steer the conversation or steer the uh, the resuscitation in the in the way you need it to go uh, uh, so that the students get the point of the exercise um, and once you've you've gotten a comfort zone at that then do exactly as you said take an instructional methodology course so you know you're well versed in in the pedagogy of of uh, of EMS education, um, the nuts and bolts of how to construct a lesson plan, how to schedule and, and plan a class, uh, how to break it up, uh, break up your, your cognitive and your psychomotor and your affective components and how to, uh, how to teach to each of those domains and how to evaluate more importantly to those domains. That's probably the biggest problem you see new instructors get is because the, they, they said to themselves, all right, um, I think I'm pretty good at this. I know my stuff pretty well. Uh, I'm pretty skilled on a truck. Uh, maybe I could make a living as a teacher. Maybe I could pass on some of my knowledge to others. Uh, and the motivation is there. It's just the how is the problem. Uh, most of those people are really strong in their skills, but the ability to stand up and, and talk to a group of people uh, and hold their attention uh, or to stand back and 
and engage in Socratic dialogue and steer a discussion uh, efficiently um, is something that only is going to come with time and practice. And they're going to have to know uh, what the point is, the exercise, and, and, and the nuts and bolts of how to set that up and how to teach it. Uh, that takes quite some time. Um, the NAMC Level 1 and Level 2 instructor courses are, I, I would say, are uh, at a minimum uh, requirement. Uh, your state may, my state doesn't require NAMC, but but uh, our, our instructor certification models the, the NAMC Level 1 class. Once you've got all your, your, your card course instructor certifications and, and you've gone through that EMS instructor course, uh, the, the next big step is pick a really talented instructor and hang out in their back pocket for a while and let them mentor you. See how it's done by somebody who really knows what they're doing. They have a good reputation. Uh, they, they have good results. Their students not only pass the, the certification exam uh, very easily, uh, but the employers uh, that are hiring their graduates uh, think highly of them as well. You find that guy and, or girl and have them mentor you. Uh, offer to be a clinical instructor or a guest lecturer or whatever you do and just ape what you see they do really, really well. You know, um, it's only plagiarism if you steal from one person. If you steal from many, it's called research. That's funny, man. That's funny. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> uh, you know I, I think really what you have to do, you know, I don't, I think in the beginning it, it really is practice, practice, practice. You know, they say when you open yeah. a business, the secret to the business is location, location, location. Mm -hmm. And you really need to practice it. But you really have to be able to be your, you know, the president of your own fan club. You've got to believe in yourself. You've got to show a willingness to do this. You're not doing this just because you want to, you know, make some more money, make some extra money on the side to where you don't have to work in the truck uh, for a 12-hour shift. Yeah. You want to be able to do this because you believe in the practice of education. Maybe you're disappointed in the education that you received. Maybe you were motivated by an instructor that really kept your attention and, you know, mm -hmm. really kind of gave you the drive to say, I want to do that one day. Yeah. But whatever you know, you even, even, even a bad instructor can, be a, can, can teach you something. If nothing else, they're a cautionary tale. Don't do what that guy did. You know? Yeah. I just had to interject that there. No, no, but I think you're <laughs> right. I mean, and that's kind of goes back to the pros and cons that we talked about in the beginning as I gave my advice to say, what is it the things that really kind of turned you off about an instructor? You got to remember, man. Some of these courses that you go to, you're paying your hard-earned money for. Your hard-earned mm -hmm. money that you don't make a lot of, that you have to really plan on taking this course because you're working from paycheck to paycheck and you're trying to make the ends meet. But, oh, my God, it'd be really great if I can take this critical care course. You know, mm -hmm. that's a lot of money. That's a lot of hard-earned money. And you want to be able to make certain that you have an instructor that's going to be able to give you the, the value for that. Not only are you going to learn the material, mm -hmm. but you're going to learn it in a way that's going to give you the opportunity to appreciate that. And, Kelly, i got to think when you become an instructor, this is a very, very important position to take because – People are going to rely on you for knowledge, and you and I have talked about the dogma of EMS, and we've joked about, you know, 50% of the stuff that's learned in medical school is wrong, they just don't know the 50 That really falls onto the instructor, and it falls onto their ability to research, and it falls on their ability to, to present that material. If you're just regurgitating to say that the atria are superior to the ventricles, you're wrong. 
The atria do not sit on top of the ventricles. They actually sit behind the ventricles. If you think about how the heart is situated in the chest, we actually do CPR on the left ventricle. So the way that the heart is situated, if you think about that fist, those ventricles sit behind, I'm sorry, those atria sit behind the ventricles. They don't sit on top of the ventricles. And we've yeah. been saying the same BS to students for, for years and years, but it's only through research, it's only through study, it's only through talking to cardiologists and, and surgeon, cardiac surgeons that you really kind of understand what that truth is. And, and I challenge you to say to you, what kind of instructor do you want to be and then use that as your motivation to be the best one that you think you can be. Yeah, and and I would add, you know, don't be afraid to say I don't know. That's that's the big, you know, the the fearful thing about being a new instructor. Oh, what if they ask a question I don't know, and 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 uh, I'll stand up there looking stupid. No, there's nothing stupid about admitting uh, your ignorance on something. Uh, but the follow up is is get that information to them. Uh, that's a very good question. I really can't give you a good answer on that, but if you'll check back with me after the break, I can give you the most current information. Uh, and, and part and parcel of that is to cultivate a network of, of fellow instructors and, and mentors who's, uh, who can help you get the information that you seek, uh, people that you can trust that will give you valid information. Hey, Kelly, just to stop you there, I mean, you yeah. called me before a class that you were going to give and say, hey, Chris, refresh me on that thing just one more time before I talk about yeah. it. And, yeah, and, yeah, you know, Chris, and, refresh me on, on the hand tape system. Right, exactly. But, <laughs> but, you know, I mean, but exactly what you yeah. just said is exactly what you practice. Yeah, and, and that's what you do, you know, and I'll, I'll, uh, I'll pull up, you know, uh, articles and, and stuff that I've, I've got probably 300 bookmarks in my internet browser, and I've got them finally um, uh, arranged into to different folders. So I'm giving a lecture on capnography, for example. I've got two dozen resources in there that I can pull up at a moment's notice. And more, more so than that, I actually have people who are fairly knowledgeable in capnography that I can, I can call. And if, if a question stumps me, it likely won't stump them. Um, not only have I cultivated those people as, as mentors and as, as, uh, as peers, um, but I, I, I will often uh, ape their shtick a little bit when they're, when they're presenting uh, material. That's, you know, I, I attend those, those EMS conferences uh, for a reason. Uh, it's not so much to, to further my own knowledge of that. So that's a great benefit, but I want to see how other instructors and other educators approach a, a situation that, that I may handle differently or, or they'll, how they'll uh, approach teaching a, a particular topic. Um, and, and I'll sometimes adopt some of their shtick. Uh, I'm a little bit of, you know, Bob Page and a little bit of Tim Phelan and a little bit of Chris Sevalero and a little bit of John Plytus and a little bit of Mike Smith and, and that sort of thing. And I'll, I'll throw some Brian Bledsoe research in there and, and, uh, and, and that sort of thing. And I try to, to, to pick the best of, uh, of each one of those attributes and, and try to model my own style after that. Um, and it's, it's become something uniquely Kelly. Uh, and that's what I would, I would encourage new instructors to do as well. Form that network. Uh, know your stuff as well as you can first. But realize that you can't know it all. Um, but know where you can get that information. That's, that's the name of the game these days. We can't. Uh, with, with the Internet, uh, 
Uh, we have the sum total of human knowledge available at our fingertips. Uh, let's use it for something other than Facebook and cat pictures. Um, but hey, that's what we think. We'd like to know what you think. So email us at the show at ems1.com. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes. And for myself and co-host Chris Valero, thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. We're going to catch you guys next week.